0: Section Four of Tales from Yokoy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avahi in August two thousand fifteen. Tales from Yokoy by Mor Yokoy. Section Four: The Justice of Soliman, a Turkish Story. In the days of Sultan Soliman the Magnificent there lived at stamboul a rich merchant whose name was muhzin who traded in jewels and precious stones this man had a dear consort emingha whom he loved better than all his precious stones whose red lips he prized beyond the brightness of his rubies the sparkle of whose eyes excelled the brilliance of his diamonds and the speech of whose lips was like a silver bell he would not have bartered those eyes and those lips for all the treasures of the world. But alas! Those sparkling eyes, those sweet lips, were but corruptible treasures. The breath of a breeze from the morea, which brought the pestilence along with it, robbed Muhzin of his treasure, and cast a cloud over those star-bright eyes, a dumbness upon those speaking lips. What Muchzin would not have given away for all this world's goods, he gave to death, for nothing, and they buried his treasure in the ungrateful earth, which gives back nothing, not even thanks for what you give her. Worthy Muchzin wept sore because of his loss. He would neither eat nor drink, and sleep forsook him. Night after night he went on to the roof of his house, and wept and wept till dawn vainly did his friends and kinsfolk try to console him they could do nothing with him he could not reconcile himself to the thought that those lovely eyes would never smile upon him again that that dear mouth would never speak to him more one night when muhzin was lying back gloomily on his sleepless couch suddenly through the open door a wondrous vision stood before him a gray-haired old man whose beard and turban shone like bright white flames and the vision spoke to him thus in a gentle consolatory voice i have compassion on thy bitter affliction and upon thy grief i see that thou art worthy of superhuman succour because thou dost love after a superhuman sort thy wife hath not died for she was not a mortal maid but a peri eminha still lives for she possesses the power of the peris to die whensoever she desires to do and awake in another realm there to begin a new life till she choose to die again and so pursue her metamorphosis therefore gird up thy loins and set out forthwith on a pilgrimage to mecca and there sit down at the gate of the burial place hard by the well of zemzem and wait there wait there till a funeral procession comes thither carrying a blue painted coffin covered by a pall of yellow silk which pall will be embroidered with blue letters and silver arabesques then thou shalt rush out stop the funeral procession uncover the face of the dead and thou shalt find a The mourners will not believe that it is thy wife, but thou must then take from thy girdle this little box, which contains a salve, and touch the eyebrows and the lips of thy dead wife with thy anointed fingertips, and then her eyes will open, and her lips will mutter, Muchzin, and no one will doubt any longer that it is indeed thy wife, and thou wilt bring her back to Istanbul, and she will no longer desire to leave thee. But in order that thy treasures may not be stolen during the time of thy pilgrimage, take them not with thee, lest evil doers rob thee of them by the way, but commit them to the keeping of thy faithful friend, the Honourable Ali Hojiah, who is learned in the law and an interpreter of the Koran, so that thou mayest find them all safe when thou returnest and with these words the grey-bearded old man vanished from before the eyes of Muhzin. The merchant awoke full of amazement. He rubbed his eyes with both hands to see whether he was not still dreaming, lit a rushlight, and his amazement increased when he found on his table the little box which the old man from the other world had brought him. It was beautifully wrought of ivory, richly set with turquoises and perforated with gold such a masterpiece came from no human hand the next day he told the matter to ali Hodja, to whom the enigmatical old man had referred him the lawyer shook his head over it as if he did not like the business at all made objections and tried to persuade muhzin that he had dreamed it all or imagined it with his eyes wide open and finally appealed to his doubts by reminding him that the body of eminha was now lying in the tomb where muhzin had buried it let him break open the tomb and see for himself quoth ali muhzin hastened to perform the request of his friend and behold the dead body of eminha was not in the desecrated tomb and now no power in the world was capable of keeping Muhsin back from following the voice of the heavenly vision. He put in his pouch whatever of ready money he had by him, and confided his whole store of gems to Ali Hojia, who was his nearest friend, and a worthy, honorable man to boot, till he himself should return from Mecca. And Ali took the charge upon him for friendship's sake. Muchzin, after many vicissitudes, reached Mecca. On the road robbers attacked him and robbed him of all his money, but fortunately the little box with the magic unguent escaped, it was concealed within his turban, and therefore they did not discover it. A beggar he entered the holy city, and lived from hand to mouth on the alms of compassionate pilgrims every day he could be seen at the gate of the cemetery near the well of zemzem watching the funeral processions which passed before him day after day for mecca is a populous place a year had passed and he was still waiting in vain a coffin such as that described by the nocturnal apparition had not yet passed before him either the coffin was blue but the pall was not yellow or the pall lacked the necessary blue letters, or if it had the blue letters, the arabesques were not of silver, or if every requisite mark of identification was there, the corpse was not the corpse of a woman, but of a man, or a man-child, of twelve years. Muhzin was slowly approaching that state of mind which we call madness, when one day he heard from the other beggars that there was going to be a splendid funeral that day, the wife of the kadileska the beautiful Eminha, had died Eminha that name put heart into muhzin once more all day long he did not depart from the gate of the cemetery and the beating of his heart almost stifled him when he heard approaching him the funeral music which always heads the funeral procession muhzin had no thought for the splendour of the funeral no thought for the dancing dervishes, nor for the wailing women mourners, nor for the silikdar's who scattered small silver coins among the mob of mendicants. All he could do was to gaze upon the buyer. Even from a distance, he could see that the coffin was blue and the pall a bright yellow. When they came nearer, he could even distinguish the blue letters on the pall and when they came level with him he could see the silver embroidery of arabesques quite well muhzin wild with joy violently pushed aside those standing in front of him forced his way through the procession right up to the coffin and cried stop stop this is emina this is my wife the attendants the great men the Kadileska himself the dead woman's husband looked with amazement upon this raving figure who had dared to disturb the order of the funeral, but Muhsin regarded them not, but stripped the pall from off the face of the dead woman. The young woman who lay there really resembled his eminja. Death is a great artist. With one cold breath she knows how to make all human faces singularly alike. "'She is not dead!' cried Muhsin to the dumbfounded crowd. "'I can make her arise, and then you will see that she will call me her husband. "'I have been waiting for her here a whole year. "'Hence all of you, for I would kill and slay and scatter curses around me. Ye shall not bury the living.' "'The people were alarmed at the sight of mad Muhsin, "'and still more by his savage words. "'Moreover, the mourning Kadileska dearly loved his dead wife,' And when Muhzin said that he would raise her up again, he also was glad, and made place for him by the coffin, that he might perform his miracle. With the fervour of devotion, Muhzin drew from his girdle the little box and opened it. A yellow-coloured ointment was inside it, speckled with little green-gold points, of whose magical efficacy Muhzin himself was quickly convinced when he dipped into it the index finger of his right hand, for it burned him as severely as if he had plunged it into boiling oil. But this extraordinary quality of the ointment was only a greater testimony to its marvellous origin, so that Muhzin did not hesitate to thoroughly rub the eyebrows and the lips of the corpse with his anointed fingertips everybody was intently watching to see whether the breath of life would return beneath the influence of the wondrous unguent but nobody was so devout a believer in it as muhzin himself but lo instead of the eyes and lips of the dead woman opening as was expected of them the places which muhzin had anointed turned black the skin began to crackle and blister and the face of the dead woman became quite hideous horror seized upon muhzin this was not the effect he had anticipated the people around him murmured aloud the kadileska rushed furiously upon him and seizing him by the throat cast him to the ground a cursed magician he cried so shamelessly to distort the face of my dead wife and make her now that she is dead just such a one as thou thyself art while still alive to the stake with him thundered the mob all around they were furious with muhzin to the fiery pit with him reserved for the idol worshippers and sorcerers the wretch who would desecrate the bodies of the dead and worthy muhzin would have been burnt on the spot had not the governor of damascus happened to be there who perceiving that they had to do with a lunatic rather than an idolater ordered his chaucers to seize Muchzin, tie him to a pillar, give him two hundred strokes with a camel-driver's whip, and then bring the man before him, that he might confess what mad idea it was that had induced him to deform the features of the dead wife of the Kadileska. Muchzin told the governor about the marvellous apparition which had sent him thither. "'My poor Muchzin!' said the governor when he understood the whole affair what a confounded fool thou art to allow thyself to be imposed upon by such a lot of rubbish some one has been making a butt of thee why that eminha who was the wife of the kadileska was born and lived here from her childhood until now how then could she be thy wife a year ago moreover that unguent of thine is a fraud it is no magic thing but a corrosive poison with which they are wont to blister the bodies of the poor in the times of pestilence every dervish knows of it come to thy senses man make an end of thy pilgrimage return home to stamboul and follow thy trade i hope that no greater trouble awaiteth thee when thou gettest home muhzin kissed the hand of the humane pasha who gave him some dinars to help him on his way and turned back towards Stamboul forthwith, with ragged garments, a scarred body, a broken heart, and a half-crazy mind. Poor and tormented by grief, he reached Stamboul after many weeks, picked up by one caravan in the place where a former one had dropped him, bringing home with him a wound on the temples from the lance of a Bedouin freebooter, the impression in his thigh of four teeth of a panther from which he had contrived to escape half alive and a terrible emptiness in his heart in which all hope and faith had died when he got back to stumble he thought within himself that after having escaped from so many dangers god would at least visit him with no more affliction but content with what had already befallen him would suffer him to attend to his business in peace for the small remainder of his days wherefore at once he sought out worthy ali Hodja, his one faithful friend to whom he had confided the keeping of his treasures ali received him kindly well and so thou hast just come muhzin said he of a truth i had given thee up for lost every evening i have prayed that thou mightest return and then Muhzin told him how ill he had fared, and what a fool the vision had made of him, and said that henceforth he would believe no more in visions, even if their beards were made of moonbeams. And that will be wise of thee, Muhsin, said Ali Hodja. Did I not tell thee not to go? If thou hadst remained at home, there thou wouldst not have been robbed and made a fool of and now thou hadst made of thyself a laughing stock and a beggar. Yet grieve not, for a week a table shall be spread in my house for thee, and then other merciful mussulmans will care for thee to the end of thy days. I thank thee for thy goodness, Ali, said Muhsin, but I will not be a beggar. Produce my hidden treasures, and I will trade with them as before. I will live honorably. Then, where are these treasures of thine asked ali exceedingly amazed why with thee of course replied muhzin ali Hodja shook his head muhzin my friend thy misfortunes have robbed thee of thy wits so that thou knowest not what thou sayest thou hast just told me that thou wert robbed on thy journey and now thou sayest i have treasures of thine which i have never seen I tell thee what go now and have a little sleep and clear thy mind somewhat after that i will gladly see thee again and with that worthy Hojia very gently pushed muhzin from his door and shut it in his face the unfortunate merchant now fell into absolute despair he himself began to doubt whether he was in his senses or whether he had indeed turned crazy AND THE HIDDEN TREASURE WAS A DREAM, A PHANTOM LIKE THE REST. IN HIS DESPAIR HE FLEW TO THE GRAND VIZIER, CAST HIMSELF AT HIS FEET, AND TOLD HIM THE WHOLE STORY. HAST THOU A WITNESS WHO SAW THEE GIVE THY TREASURES TO HOJIYA? INQUIRED THE GRAND VIZIER. ALLAH ALONE, NONE OTHER. TRULY WE WERE SUCH GOOD FRIENDS, ONE BODY AND ONE SOUL then keep still till i have spoken to the sultan when the grand vizier had spoken to the sultan about the matter soliman commanded him to proclaim at every corner of every street through the public criers that a certain merchant muhzin by name recently returned from a pilgrimage to mecca had drowned himself at night in the bosphorus his dead body had been found by the fishermen if therefore the dead man had any friends or relations who wished to bury him with due respect they were to come for him otherwise the corpse would be buried in the common cemetery reserved for the poor naturally ali hojia was the last person to come forward to bury muhzin on the contrary he did not show himself at all but several days afterwards he secretly visited the cemetery of the poor and there discovered the flat tomb on which two rough stones had been rolled and on one of these stones the name of muhzin had been coarsely smeared but muhzin was cast by the sultan into the prison of the seven towers so that he might not be able to show himself even if he had a mind to there however he was well treated and lacked nothing soliman moreover got from the merchant an exact description of his deposited treasures, piece by piece, with all their distinguishing marks, and made an inventory of them. Then he commanded the grand vizier to make friends with Hojia under some pretext or other. The grand vizier went very cautiously to work, and having frequently had occasion to observe the wisdom of the learned lawyer, promised to present him to the sultan the sultan condescended to enter into conversation with the lawyer and expressed himself delighted at his dialectical skill presently he got into the habit of asking his opinion concerning various ticklish points of law in cases about which even the members of the divan had different opinions and always he gave great weight to the words of ali at last he so far extended his favour towards him as to appoint him chief almoner and raise him high among the dignitaries of the Seraglio. So much favour absolutely blinded Hogia. It was now six months since the death of Muhzin had been proclaimed, and no doubt he thought no more about it. One day the sultan perceived in the girdle of Hodgia a rosary just like one which was mentioned in the inventory of the merchant's stolen treasures. It was made of coral beads of the size of filberts, engraved all round with sacred texts and the larger beads were encrusted with diamonds the sultan admired the string of beads what a splendid bead string thou hast said he in the whole of my treasury i have not the like of it the coral is extraordinarily beautiful and the workmanship priceless ali was transported with joy and made haste to offer to the sultan the jewel which was so fortunate as to have won the favour of the grand Signor. The sultan graciously condescended to accept the present, and gave Hogia instead of it three purses of gold, far more indeed than the jewel was worth, and invited him the next day to the Zirit square, where a splendid entertainment was to be held. Hodgia was even more delighted by this distinction than by the sultan's gift, he would be able to appear on the dzirid in the suit of the sultan. The dzirid was the one open space in the serayo where the Turkish magnates diverted themselves with pike-casting, dart-throwing, and other manly sports. The sultan himself often took part in these pastimes. The best of shooting grounds also formed part of the dzirid. On this occasion the sultan also took part in the shooting, and very badly he shot, not once did he hit the mark. Wherefore he began to grow angry, and, as is the way with marksmen under such circumstances, he blamed the mark, the bowstring, the quiver, and the burning sun for his bad shooting, and at last burst forth against the ring on his finger as the cause of all his wide shooting for it was the custom of the archer to wear on his finger a serpent-shaped spiral ring, so as to gain a firmer hold of the bowstring, and be able to make the bow twang to its full extent at the proper time. The sultan kept on grumbling at his ring, saying that it was badly made and caught in the bowstring every time, so that he could not let it go quickly enough, and with that he snatched it off and cried, "'Give me another ring!' His attendants hastened to offer their own rings to the grand seigneur. The sultan tried them all, one after the other. That won't do, that won't do. Ah, nobody makes such good archery rings as the goldsmith Sulasan used to make, and he is dead now. But is there none here who has a ring made by Sulasan? At this question, Ali Hojia eagerly rushed up to the sultan and signified that he possessed a ring which was a production of the dead master. Would the padishah deign to accept it from him? Soliman did deign to accept it. This was the choicest jewel which the merchant had described to him. He accepted him from Hojiak, put it on his finger, and thenceforth shot so skilfully at the mark that everyone applauded him, and none more so than Ali Hojiak after the sports in the tzirid the sultan sent for muhzin in his hand was the string of beads and on his finger was the ring and he was praying with the koran before him astonishment overcame the merchant when he saw his lost jewels in the possession of soliman he cast himself at the sultan's feet and catching hold of the hem of his garment exclaimed o oh, my lord the ring and the string of beads which thou holdest in thy hand are mine the sultan asked him what was written on each one of the beads and how many stones were in the ring and the merchant answered each question exactly whereupon the sultan sent him back to the seven towers on the following day he sent for hojia he discoursed with him on all manner of juridical questions which had come before the divan and took the opinion of the learned lawyer upon them all. Amongst other cases he suddenly put this one to him. A certain man had grossly abused the confidence of a friend who had confided his property to his care while he was on his travels, and robbed him of everything. What did such a man deserve for such a monstrous act of treachery? now it is notorious that the greatest sinners are the most rigorous judges of offences similar to their own in others and it is even possible that it never occurred to hojia that he himself had been guilty of a like offence besides his sin was buried deeply away in the tomb of muhzin and nobody knew anything about it so the jurist replied to the sultan that such an extraordinary offence demanded an extraordinary punishment and the sinner deserved nothing less than pounding to death in a mortar thou hast pronounced thine own condemnation cried the sultan then he clapped his hands and four isoglans came running in and bound hojia hand and foot took from him his keys searched his dwelling thoroughly and found in it the whole of the treasure which had been confided to him by his friend the merchant the confounded hojia who fancied he was bathing in the sunlight of the highest favour and never reflected that in the sunlight everything becomes transparent in his terror confessed everything and also said that he was the apparition who after fastening on a beard smeared over with a phosphorescent unguent, had come to the room of the sorrowing Muhsin, and practised on the unfortunate mourner the accursed trick which had well-nigh robbed him of life and reason. It was he, too, who had stolen the body of Eminha from its tomb. The sultan immediately summoned a meeting of the divan, laid the case before the viziers, and told them of the punishment which the Hojia himself had said that a crime like his deserved. The viziers answered that Hodgier's opinion was just. The crime was indeed of a new sort, and it was right, therefore, that he should be the first to taste the proper punishment for it. By the sultan's command, therefore, a huge mortar was cut out of marble, a huge pounding pole with four handles thereto being at the same time made to match the mortar. Ali Hojia, meanwhile, was attired in a purple robe, with a golden turban on his head, and a bespangled girdle round his body, and so they cast him into the mortar. Then four Bostanjis seized the pounding beetle, and raising it by its four handles, rammed it with all their might into the mortar at a sign from the aga of the Bostanjis. A frightful yell arose from the mortar, tapering off into an unspeakable, indescribable whistling shriek. The Bostanjis raised the pounding beetle a second time, and a second time they rammed it home. But now only a muffled groan responded to the impact. The third stroke was followed by a ghastly whimper, and after the fourth stroke there was no response but the crunching of bones. And so they went pounding away with their pestle till they were tired out, and by that time all that remained in the mortar was a shapeless mesh of blood and bones and silk and gold filigree. Thus did Sultan Soliman punish the deceiver. Eighty years ago the French traveller Tavernier saw this very mortar, so terrible a memorial of Ottoman justice, standing in the door of the hall of the divan end of section four